The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. guest today is a chemical oceanographer who focuses on isotope biogeochemistry to explore how gases in the ocean cycle and ultimately participate in global climate change. He has particular interest in oceanic methane, which, due to the dynamic nature and massive size of the relatively unexplored oceanic methane system, has the potential for feedbacks with climate. As a recipient of grants to research the methane levels in the Gulf of Mexico, he was recently quoted, This is the most vigorous methane eruption in modern human history. Dr. John Kessler, Pat O'Brien, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, David. Dr. Kessler, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you so much uh, to you, Pat, for working so hard to, to make this happen. Dr. Kessler, I know that you have received a grant uh, to look at the situation in the Gulf. Uh, what are the general conclusions that you're coming to at this stage, in particularly in reference to the methane that we are terribly alarmed about in this area? Well, in general, where we were able to investigate was uh, is actually quite close to ground zero. We were able to, to begin our analyses about uh, a third of a mile from uh, the broken wellhead, and we surveyed out uh, as far as about seven, eight miles in radius uh, from the wellhead, uh, collecting water samples at the sur- surface of the ocean uh, quite frequently, uh, doing numerous profiles through the water column to characterize various components of the, of the natural gas and methane uh, part of this spill. And one of the interesting findings that we uh, had, have discovered so far is that most of the natural gas, most of the methane that's being emitted from this spill, which BP puts uh, estimates of uh, about 40% by weight of the material that's spewing out of the broken riser pipe, most of that material is staying in the deep waters. In fact, if we were to chop the water column up into about thirds, the bottom third of the water is, uh, on average, about 100,000 times uh, more concentrated than it would be normally. What are the short-term effects and long-term effects in this? We clearly see now an extraordinary catastrophe in front of us with the amount of oil. And I know that Pat O'Brien has been researching this for weeks now on the, the materials used outside of that immediate problem. But what are the effects particularly of this gas? What can it, what can it do? What sort of effect can it have on the ecosystem? The, the, the main effects that it can have is it actually can lead to reductions of dissolved oxygen in the water. 
these different, this gas and the different components of natural gas can actually serve as food for various uh, microorganisms that live naturally in, in the water column. And just like you and I, when these organisms consume methane, they consume oxygen as part of the digestive process. So that natural biodegradation, I suppose you may call it, of the oil may not occur as we expect it to? Uh, well, this is this is actually the, the natural biodegradation of of the oil and the natural gas components. That that could very well uh, occur uh, quite normally, and, and that process actually leads to a consumption of oxygen from the waters. Uh, and, and so, the, the main question that we're trying to address: if we have all of this oil, all of this natural gas that's now dissolved in the waters, especially the deep waters. Uh, will that lead to a feeding frenzy uh, of this natural biodegradation? And as this is biodegraded, it, it consumes oxygen. And so if we have this feeding frenzy, will that lead to then uh, an oxygen drawdown in the waters? What is the extent? Of you, you've actually spent some time there. I'm not sure that many of us outside of that immediate arena really realize just how dreadful this situation is what were your thoughts when you were there what were the sort of sights that you saw it was a very very memorable experience there's there's no doubt about it uh i remember arriving we we sailed uh in the evening uh of our uh, the first day of our expedition i think we we left port around 4 p.m which would then uh given the the speed at which the boat can travel put us on site about 3 a.m in the morning uh, and I remember wanting, uh, waking myself up so that I would be there when we arrived on site so that the captain and I could converse uh, very easily about what to do. And I, I remember uh, waking up and seeing that the very first thing that, that's, that really comes out in my memory is the porthole on the room where I was sleeping uh, was just aglow with the fire of uh, the, the natural gas flare. Uh, as the containment unit is, is, contain, is trying to contain the oil, it contains both the oil and the natural gas. Once that comes up to the surface, they're separating off the natural gas component from the oil. They're storing the oil, and they're flaring off the natural gas. And just the, the, the illumination of the night sky with this devilish-like flare uh, was something that w was very apparent from, from that first moment where we arrived on the scene. Uh, but as, as daylight arrived and, and we could get a better impression on what was actually happening, uh, one of the one of the things that that I I was really um, impressed with was just the level of the operation. There is so much coordination going on uh, with incredibly powerful, massive pieces of equipment uh, to get this uh, this this well capped as quickly as they can. It, to me, it seemed like uh, a, a well orchestrated ballet dance of skyscrapers is kind of the best way that I can describe it, uh, and that to me was very impressive. What about the floor, the, the seabed down there? There have been many reports that it's actually shattered and that it could, in fact, be difficult with the depth to cap it off, and it could be that there are many other points on the seabed that are emitting oil. Um, would, would you have any, any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I, I've heard the exact same types of reports. 
the the techniques that we had on board, the instrumentation that we had on board, uh, did not allow us to to actually visualize the seafloor. We could collect samples of water, collector samples of sediment, um, all the way through the water column. Uh, we could collect samples from the seafloor up to the sea surface, but we d- actually did not have the ability to visualize the sea surface. So I didn't see that firsthand. Uh, but definitely, if the seafloor at this point is is starting to fracture and more seeps and vents are forming, uh, that could definitely lead to uh, a much more challenging uh, type of situation to, to seal off ultimately. What do you think the level of concern should be for people not only in that area but further afield if indeed this oil is spread by uh, deep sea currents? Uh, are you concerned that this really could be a major catastrophe that we, we might not be able to stop at this stage? Well, certainly what we need to do is, is be able to understand it a little bit more. We're just beginning to scratch the surface uh, on what these deep sorts of plumes look like. Uh, where are they coming? Uh, how are they meandering through the water? Are they ever starting to surface? And will they actually make it up, say, onto the continental shelves and, and into, uh, say, some of the marshes and things like that? At this point, we don't have clear evidence that they are actually making it up to those shallow regions uh, and, and actually affecting the coastline. Uh, the measurements that we had made allowed us to see those deeper plumes, uh, and we tried to track them to logical locations where they could make it up uh, onto the shallow continental shelves, uh, into the continental margins, uh, uh, well, the continental shelf region, um, uh, but we did not see any evidence of it making it up there yet. So should people be concerned about the health hazards from the combination of all these problems from the methane to the oil itself? 100% they should. Um, this is, there is a tremendous amount of natural gas and oil that are in these subsurface blooms. Uh, these definitely exist down there, uh, and, and the levels that we were seeing and the extent uh, of these plumes uh, around the wellhead were, were, were quite astonishing. Uh, now, uh, with those being down there and the possibility of them actually being transported onto the continental margins, uh, I'm sorry, onto the continental shelves, uh, certainly exists. Uh, so uh, this isn't something that should be ignored. Uh, but at the same point, uh, there shouldn't be mass hysteria. There, there's, uh, there's definitely a level at this point of simply not knowing. Uh, and, and so what there needs to be is a really organized effort to track these sorts of underwater plumes of natural gas and oil and have a better understanding on where they're actually going, how they're being degraded, so that we can really then have a more educated understanding on if they will actually make it up uh, onto land and, and, and certainly into the continental shelf region. Just for the oil itself, though, in those coastline areas like uh, Louisiana and even Florida, is there, is there a health hazard now for people in those areas that they really should be making certainly provisions for themselves, uh, given that we really don't know what the health hazards are in the long term? Well, the, the, the main thing that I can see in terms of the health hazard uh, is the surface oil uh, and, and how that might interact with uh, where it might come to shore uh, and influence water or, or air quality, I should say. Uh, um, one of the things that we noticed while we were out there uh, was just simply the level at which there were volatile organic compounds 
in the airs that would require us to wear respirators at certain times because the air quality was too bad. And if that sort of uh, harmful air quality uh, propagates closer to more populated urban areas, then yeah, that could provide uh, some short-term health impacts to those regions. Uh, Dr. Kessler, I'd like to turn to Pat O'Brien now. Uh, Pat has been looking at the Corexit problem, which I know certainly has some harmful influences on this and implications. It was clearly banned uh, in the UK market uh, for very good reasons. Pat, could you maybe comment on the information that you found on that material that they're using? Yes, the uh, material is called Corexit. It um, is made by Nelco Corporation, which is, if you dot the lines and cross the T's as we have, is really a sister of the BP Corporation. The Nelco uh, product, Corexit, was used in the Exxon Valdez spill. Um, it was banned in 1998 by the European nations. And at the same time, it was reviewed again in 2010 and still remained on the list of banned products uh, for Europe. The other side of that coin is it was the fourth most toxic product that was listed on the EPA list of approved products. Uh, it was questioned uh, by Congress why that product was used and others that would be of a less toxic nature were not used. And that was because uh, BP was saying that is all we could get. Now, that product is made by what's called the surfactant. It's like Dawn soap. Matter of fact, it is Dawn soap. Uh, and then they put it through a process and add uh, many other chemicals into that soup. And it is a supposedly a dispersant. They're using that correctly in the terms that you hear in the mainstream media. And it's supposed to, the theory is that it will disperse it over a long area and that the natural then uh, bacteria of the ocean would be able to accommodate that, uh, or the Gulf in this case. Uh, just However, the issue, the issue becomes of this corrected product is that it is a very unhealthy product, and I don't think we have a realization of what the combination of the two might be. And Dr. Ed, ask you to, to see what you may know of what the combination of the Corexit product with the methane might be. Specifically, with regard to that, there are, uh, we were funded by the National Science Foundation to go out and look at uh, this component of the oil spill, the natural gas component, and how, where that might be going. Is it staying in the water? Uh, is it cycling through the air? And if it stays in the water, it, how is it being, uh, what are the rates at which it's being biodegraded? Um, and there was a, another group on our expedition that was actually looking at the biodegradation of oil. We were looking at the, uh, the, the degradation of the natural gas, but they were looking at the biodegradation of oil and how that might be influenced as well by the addiction, the addition of uh, the dispersant. Uh, so uh, while I, I don't have a, a solid answer for you at this point, because all of those analyses are currently underway in, in our laboratories, uh, what we're noticing so far is this. The, the rates of degradation that we had uh, initially thought could be significant are, are actually not. Um, and now that could mean a, a variety of things. Uh, this could mean, uh, n number one, once we have a, a better understanding on how the 
the dispersant uh, plays a, a role, say, maybe in the toxicity of the microorganisms that normally degrade uh, natural gas and oil, uh, that, then that'll tell us right away. Uh, but, but this could be, we could be seeing that these biodegradation rates being slower now uh, could maybe be, have a harmful effect due to the, the addition of the dispersant, or simply, uh, we're simply uh, seeing a natural phenomenon. Uh, the waters of the Gulf of Mexico are not used to these high concentrations of these hydrocarbons. Um, uh, there are natural microorganisms that degrade these things, but at these higher concentrations, uh, what probably hasn't happened yet is the populations haven't had a chance to reproduce. Basically, we've stocked the buffet, but the, the restaurant hasn't uh, had all of its patrons come into the front doors yet. Uh, and, and so uh, we're trying to look at all of those different angles from, say, potentially increased toxicity due to the addition of the dispersant versus just simply population sizes and just having to increase and reproduce now that there's this uh, much larger uh, uh, feeding trough there, uh, and how all of these play together uh, to affect the rates at which all of these uh, hydrocarbons are being biodegraded. May I ask you, Dr. Kessler, we have the hurricane system upon us. All indications are that it's going to be unusual this year, maybe um, rather more dangerous than, than uh, many years. What is the implications of that if a hurricane does come in, hits this area and takes not only the Corexit that Pat O'Brien has talked about, but also this methane gas that you have been looking at inland. Have you any models or anything to suggest the dangers of that? Well, uh, in terms of the, the oil and, and maybe any of the dispersants that could potentially be on the surface waters, uh, certainly uh, the addition of a tropical storm to that mix could bring some of that surface material uh, into land, into the marsh regions, uh, and potentially influence those areas quite significantly uh, and rather dramatically. Uh, but in terms of the methane side that, that we really specialized in, in our research expedition, most of that material is staying very, very deep. Uh, the water depth where we were studying was about 1,500 meters, and it was the bottom 500 meters that we really saw a notable increase, the, the significant increase in all of that methane. And that's a region that stays relatively unaffected by uh, surface weather conditions. So if a, a hurricane was to come over top, while it would influence a lot of the, the surface oil uh, and the addition uh, of the dispersants and possibly transport those into some of the more vulnerable marsh regions, this deeper pocket of methane that we really see down there could very well be unaffected by it. What about the marine life? How is the marine life and the food chains going to be affected by that amount of gas? The gas itself in the deep ocean uh, uh, and how that might be influ how that might influence the marine life is exactly what we're trying to figure out right now. Uh, now, if we look at the gas as being toxic to specific groups of, of marine organisms, that's to be quite honest that that's a, a specialty that that we'd need to bring a, a marine biologist into the discussion. Uh, I'm a marine chemist and, and I I probably can't venture out any, uh, 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 let's say, insight I might bring into to that side of things would be more speculation than insight. Uh, but where we look at, at this 
um, is with the reduction of oxygen. Uh, with the tremendous amount of methane and natural gas that we're seeing in the deep waters, and since the deep waters cycle uh, much more slowly than the surface waters, that plume uh, of deeper water natural gas uh, is going to stay there for a significant amount of time as, as the microorganisms start to biodegrade it and consume that oxygen, that could then lead to some significant oxygen reductions that could have uh, significant and harmful impacts on the the marine life. What is that level, though, of methane gas at that depth suggesting about the the reserve below that seafloor? What are the dangers that you see if you have this huge amount of gas coming out and this huge amount of oil? and the possibility that they may not be able to cap it off completely. What are your thoughts about that? Are are there some real areas of concern of of how far this can travel and what the sort of damage is to the seabed, given that sort of pressure of all of these materials coming out? Well, I I think there is some significant concern. It stems on on many different, uh, from many different angles. Uh, We can simply look at at it as an oxygen reduction in the water itself and what sort of effects that that might have. We can also look at it as these deeper plumes uh, of oil and gas uh, eventually resurfacing at some point in time and coming in contact with the, the, uh, the, the higher abundance of life that's in coastal regions. Um, and both of these are significant issues and, and, and right concerns to have. Uh, what this really helps to enunciate is how much we don't know about these deep plumes. This is a very, very unique event in the history of the ocean and modern history of the ocean. And what this requires is to have a really concerted effort uh, to go out to understand these deep plumes, to make these measurements, uh, to run uh, models with the data that we actually collect so that we can have a better understanding on how these, this system is now going to function, where these sorts of plumes of oil and gas might go, and what influences it might have uh, on, on the local and the extended marine ecosystem. If indeed they take uh, months and maybe a year to cap this, if they can, what are the implications then with these these mixes of, of gases and, and materials like Corexit and, and, and all of these elements likely to do if they cannot do something here. But is this something that, that could open up the seabed even more? Uh, could this gas uh, really start getting out of control? Well, if we look at what we know so far and try to extend that uh, into what might happen into the future, if business as usual stays and they're not able to cap it, say, uh, for coming months, maybe a year or so, uh, we're looking right now at concentrations of oil and natural gas in the bottom water that are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times above what we see in the background. And the real issues that we have here are the Number one, the saturation, the potential saturation of the bottom waters with these subsurface plumes, to to which point, if they become saturated, then we can no longer dissolve new material in them, and these subsurface plumes no longer stay in the subsurface, and they start to rise up uh, higher in the column of water, potentially eventually even reaching the surface. The other possibility is simply the uh, the the volume and area coverage of these subsurface plumes would just simply 
increase. The, these high concentrations would still be there, uh, but they'd be extended over a much larger area. Do you think for the uh, fishing industry, uh, for the many ways of life uh, along that whole coastline stretch from Louisiana to Florida really could be very, very badly affected by this? Oh, I think they're very badly affected by it already. Uh, that's a, a very, very lucrative industry in those regions. And if this plume tracks west, it certainly could have influences in the Texas uh, fisheries industry as well. Uh, but definitely, there, there's with the amount of oil that's on the surface right now, um, they're already experiencing very significant impacts. And as this continues, uh, that damage will just continue. Pat O'Brien, um, wonder if you could give us an update on the, the general consensus in Florida where you are, uh, certainly the, the beaches, the coastline areas that are being affected now. I had an interesting day. Um, today was the day to pay bills. And so I uh, had an opportunity to talk to uh, various operators. I like to do it by phone. I'm still one of those old people that don't use the Internet for it. And I asked people as uh, we were doing our transaction how much they knew about it, how much it concerned them. I talked to people, and um, they were in St. Petersburg area. I talked to people over on the um, east coast of Florida. I talked to people up in the Atlanta area. Um, in, it's just in you know, kind of poking around and asking the question and also trying to get some additional listeners for David Gibbons. I... Uh, as the question, and people are going on with their, their daily life, and one lady here in Cocoa Beach that I talked to who had a some kind of a communique, an email, went by her desk that had uh, methane in it, but she didn't really read it. Uh, she's going back to find that email because I'm sure they're, they're chatting about it, but it's almost like nothing is really going on out there in the Gulf yet. Um, if it's not affecting my coastline, I'm not really that concerned about it. And people are just not educated, and I think part of that is that our local media, our national media, is while they're saying it's day number 79 or whatever it is, uh, they're not really giving in-depth of the seriousness of the issue as how it could impact the total southeast and perhaps with the right hurricane or right conditions, the east coast of the United States. Um, I don't think that it's really hit us, even those of us that know a lot about it. I don't think it's really hit us yet as the severity of the problem or the potential severity of the problem to health and our, our welfare and our environment and our food sources. Uh, I don't think it's uh, hit at all as it has perhaps the people, the fishermen that are in Louisiana. For you, for you, Dr. Kessler, when you when you come back and you go back to your your hometown and your office, uh, what sort of feelings do you take away about this crisis? Do you look back now, uh, and I'm sure that you'll be returning, but uh, are there wider concerns that you have about this for the people in that area, for for these lifestyles, for the way of life that they have and the living that they have? Oh, most definitely. This is this is a, a massive, massive oil spill. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, environmental disasters in the history of the United States. Uh, there's going to be major changes uh, in the way of life uh, of people that that rely on uh, on the water uh, for 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 their income. Uh, it was. I remember proposing this project. 
uh, to the National Science Foundation and, and having mixed feelings about it. Certainly thinking this is a, a fascinating uh, a thing that's happening out there, and if there's any way that I can provide some understanding to it, uh, then, uh, then maybe I'll be able to help. Uh, but at the same point, realizing how dangerous and toxic of a situation it is, and, and and wanting to keep myself and my team out of harm's way and kind of having this feeling that, well, maybe it would be best if we didn't receive funding for this project. Uh, but once we were out there and actually conducting the measurements and the analyses, everybody uh, on our team uh, gained an incredible appreciation for this event and how we contribute can contribute in any way to the understanding of it, uh, and so in that we we were uh, I guess rejuvenated a bit uh, in our efforts to, to to work a bit harder and see what we can do in terms of our understanding. Can I ask one quick question of Dr. Kessler? You mentioned earlier on um, that from time to time you would have to put uh, gas masks on your people. Um, the the question I have, have you been around other spills, not of this magnitude, of course, but have you been uh, uh, in the Gulf or ocean uh, regarding other spills? I have and not. You... This, this is my first oil spill to actually be in. The reason why uh, we were selected uh, to do this project is because these are types of uh, situations that we study in the natural environment every day. There are plenty of places around the ocean floor where natural gas and oil seep out all by itself. It does it, though, at a rate that's probably about a million times less than we're seeing in this localized region uh, from the Deep Horizon oil spill. And we look at those locations and we try to understand uh, where that natural gas is going, how it's cycling in the marine environment, and the same thing with the oil. Uh, natural gas itself, uh, methane in particular, is a very, very potent greenhouse gas. The ocean floor is very populated in, in, in methane, so we look at those locations as potentially contributing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere uh, and, and influencing climate. Uh, and so that's what we normally study, and, and this oil spill just repl replicates those situations just at a, a rate that's a million times higher. Now, at some of the places that we normally look, there is so much oil that comes out of it that certainly you can smell that, that, uh, that, that smell that really reminds me of, like, old used motor oil uh, mixed with diesel fuel. And in some locations around the planet, there's enough of that coming out of the seafloor naturally that you can smell it, that it is there. This was definitely the thickest that we've ever been in. Uh, and for that region, reason, we had uh, uh, air quality monitoring instruments with us on board. We had a, a few different types of devices, as well as we had the ability to put on respirators uh, when that air quality uh, became uh, to a point where uh, it was harmful and, and would require us to do so. Do you know what the health uh, implications are if you do not have those uh, respirators or that sort of equipment? honest, I don't. Um, uh, I don't know what the short-term and the long-term uh, health effects are of that. I, I know if we were out there for a, a significant amount of time, probably uh, we could feel uh, our lungs just not feel right, uh, exactly in terms of whether it's a carcinogen uh, uh, or if it has a more a short-term asthmatic effects. Uh, those are things that I, I don't really know. 
but I do just simply defer to uh, uh, the health and safety people, the people at, at, say, OSHA, that set the guidelines for, for these sorts of exposures uh, and, and just try to follow those to the T, assuming that they know what they're talking about. What would you think is the best thing for people in that entire area to do at this stage? They, they Clearly, they're going to be... Uh, in harm's way if they try to clean the oil on their own, uh, in, uh, particularly in Louisiana at the moment. Um, but should they be really making provisions for perhaps backing off inland at some stage if there's no uh, cap in sight here? That's, that's a fantastic question, and, and one that, 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 to be quite honest, I, I just don't know, and one that, uh, that, that the measurements that we've taken so far uh, uh, really don't give us too much of an insight in that in, uh, into that question. I know that there are uh, people that study the chemistry of the atmosphere uh, that are, are, are working quite diligently on, on just that issue, trying to, to see these plumes of volatile organic compounds uh, that are a product of this spill, how those might be propagating in the atmosphere, and if they are propagating over some more populated, possibly some urbanized areas, uh, and, and then what that might mean in terms of human health. Uh, our experience out on the water, uh, just having been there firsthand uh, and seeing what it's like, when we were at port in Mississippi, uh, we did not uh, detect just simply with our noses uh, much trace uh, of these uh, uh, these harmful uh, VOCs, these volatile organic compounds. Once we got offshore five, ten miles, not terribly far from port, you could immediately pick the, the, the smell of these up in your nose. It was quite striking. Is there a concern that that methane could creep inland over time uh, if it does not uh, deplete in strength? That certainly is a concern, and there's no doubt about it. And it should be a concern, especially because of the levels at which we are seeing. The, the data that we have uh, from our study indicates that uh, most, if not all, of that methane is staying in the deep waters. If we're looking at a depth here uh, around the horizon site of uh, approximately one mile, uh, it's about 1.5 kilometers deep, uh, most of that is staying in that bottom third uh, of the water. And we were sampling quite rapidly uh, uh, of air uh, and of surface water uh, from very, very close to the spill site, upwards of, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten miles out in radius all around. We never saw any significant increases in methane. Uh, so in terms of the methane side of things, uh, I, at this point in time, I don't see... Uh, our data does not suggest that there are any immediate health risks. Uh, I think that the higher uh, potential of health risks come from the actual oil components. And as those components volatilize, uh, benzene, for example, is, is, a, is a rather harmful component uh, of that that can, that can volatilize and at high concentrations and even at, at moderate concentrations uh, really shouldn't be uh, inhaled too much by human beings. Those are the ones that, that really needs to be a concerted effort to track those uh, and see where those atmospheric plumes are and if they are coming inland, what the potential is for that. At the point of ground zero where this occurred, are there any potentials for the plates or the immediate area of shifting or cracking because of this intense pressure of oil and methane gas and all the other gases that are coming out? Um, 
I've certainly heard reports that that there already are some small cracks coming, uh, and there are additional vents that that are coming out of the seafloor. Now, the question is, are any of those significant to have any larger influences on the marine environment and possibly even the terrestrial and atmospheric environment for which we live? There are plenty of places around the seafloor where methane, oil, natural gas seep out of the seafloor, and that's normally what we investigate. And these can occur due to cracks, say, uh, from earthquakes that happen, or they simply can just be the migration of gas upward through uh, rock and sediment until it's eventually emitted. Uh, and so, uh, yes, there are, uh, from, from my understanding, from, from what we have heard, uh, there are additional cracks that are forming, whether those are big enough uh, to cause any massive blowouts. Uh, I simply don't know. Uh, I've heard speculation uh, of, of massive, the potential for massive blowouts, but uh, beyond speculation, uh, I haven't seen any concrete evidence that those could actually happen. Is it not uh, rather frightening, Dr. Kessler, that we, ha- we, we can speculate and there are so many unknowns? It's almost a frightening thing in itself that we have so many unknowns. <laughs> That's 100% true, and you have to look at the environment that we're working in. We're working in a a mile deep of water. Uh, This is a very, very deep environment, something where it's what could be happening down there is not the easiest thing in the world to study. But we really need as a society to to, to be educated not only on uh, what uh, what we can dream of as possible, but also what is in what is probable uh, a, a massive blowout of this nature uh, a doomsday type scenario certainly is is within the realm of possibilities but it's it's definitely more uh, in the lower end of things that are probable with that said because of the uh, of the devastating nature of something of like this even if it is uh, highly unprobable uh, it, it's something that should be investigated uh, with various types of scientific techniques, be it with underwater submersible vehicles, acoustic techniques, chemical, geological techniques. All of these need to go into really assessing uh, uh, the, uh, what, the, uh, what the potential is for, for something like this to really happen. Uh, it really highlights the limited nature of our understanding, the, the, the amount of science, scientific research that's gone on so far has, has really highlighted some very unique findings, but it, it really accentuates how much uh, more we need to know and, and how much more effort needs to go out there to, to researching this in, in the near term. Could it possibly be too little too late, do you think? Uh, I, I really don't think that's the case. Um, uh, again, I think that this is kind of in the realm of uh, possible but, but highly unlikely. Uh, uh, if we're talking about what's going on in the sea floor itself, way down deep in the reservoir, this is a very, very deep reservoir and actually having a massive blowout that could cause uh, a catastrophic event uh, is something that would geologically be, be highly unlikely. It has to come through a very, very large amount of rock and sediment for this to happen. What, and if we're looking in, in terms of the water, if we're simply looking at populating the water with too much natural gas uh, to the point where we have, say, an eruption of water, an overturning of water, even that is, is something that's 
that's difficult to maintain in this type of environment. It's we're looking at the Gulf of Mexico, which does not have restricted circulation. In the water itself, to have these sorts of overturning blowout events, what you need to have is more of like a lake or what a lot of people call as a uh, as a bucket or a basin, something where you have deep water that has very, very restricted circulation, where you can populate that water to the point where it becomes so saturated that the buoyancy structure changes and you can have a large overturning and release then of that gas from the bottom waters. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico at this location uh, is, does not have those restricted circulations, which is fortunate. So as we populate uh, that, that bottom water with this natural gas, it can cycle out and, and dilute itself uh, in more of like an open ocean setting, hopefully then uh, preventing these types of disasters. Pat O'Brien. Doctor, you had mentioned uh, you know, you're looking uh, at your discoveries. What is your target date for having some kind of an analysis on what you've uh, been able to uncover? We are, are really working around the clock on that one. Uh, we recognize the uh, the really lack of information that's out there uh, with regard to this spill. Uh, and so we are trying to provide results as quickly as we can, while at the same time not compromising on the quality uh, that we know that we can provide. Uh, we are, are making measurements uh, every day from when we were on the water uh, to now when we're back in the laboratory. Uh, and so every day we come out with, with new and additional discoveries. Uh, we tried to measure as much as we can on board. Uh, uh, that enables us not only to, to, to get a better understanding more quickly, but also it, it, it helps us to not have to bring so many samples back to the laboratory for analysis. So walking off the boat, we definitely already uh, gained a, a significant amount of knowledge simply by being out there. But there's some analyses that are just simply too sophisticated to be able to mobilize uh, on, uh, on, a, on a vessel type of platform. And for those, we're, we, we brought samples back to the laboratory. Some of those analyses uh, we can do in, in a matter of days, and we're just finishing up kind of the first round of those analyses just right now. Other analyses are actually more sophisticated than that and require uh, weeks and even months to complete. So, uh, you know, the end, it's, it's almost every week we come out with uh, a significant round of new findings. We'll have one of uh, the types of analyses done most likely tomorrow. Uh, in the, the next week or two, we'll have the next round of analyses done. Uh, a, a couple of weeks after that, we'll have the next round of analyses. But I'm hoping uh, right now our goal is to have absolutely everything analyzed in approximately two months from the time we got back on shore. That's, that's significantly faster than we normally do, uh, just simply recognizing uh, the, the need for information uh, about this bill. How much worse could it get in that period? Well, um, it, it certainly, uh, at, the, at the rate at which things are going, it certainly could get worse. Uh, the nice thing about this is that we are not the only group that's, that's out there making measurements. Uh, the NOAA, the National Science Foundation, EPA, the Coast Guard are all working together to collect more data uh, as we are making our analyses. 
they've contacted us recently to see what types of uh, analytical capabilities we could send out uh, on some of their uh, expeditions, uh, as well as other uh, groups that are skilled in some of the analyses that, that we can provide are also mobilizing programs to go out in the coming weeks, in the coming months. Uh, so all of these measurements should be continually measured. Now, everybody has their own unique avenue. Uh, and, and so uh, certainly we can't say that the exact same measurements will be done day in and day out, uh, which then motivates us to get ourselves and our program back onto the water as quickly as possible. But definitely there's not going to be a vacuum uh, for the next few weeks, next couple of months until we're done. Pat O'Brien down in Florida, are there concerns as the oil is beginning to really impact the shorelines down there? It, it is. It's, uh, you know, creeping uh, southward. It's going down the panhandle. It seems to take uh, a town a day. And uh, that's the, the concern, I think, more than, than anything, is that uh, there are a lot of questions, but we're finding, you know, very few answers because, as Dr. Kessler has pointed out, uh, we've never experienced uh, something like this before. Um, that, uh, that's pretty scary. I mean, that's a pretty scary place to be living on the, the coastlines. And, again, without the knowledge of people like Dr. Kessler, we're, um, you know, we're sitting here possibly sitting ducks, and we don't know it yet. Is this a, a chance, Dr. Kessler, that um, what is the, the chance of it being picked up in the Gulf of Mexico um, and, say, being part of the rain? What is your thoughts about that? Well, uh, there will be certain, there is certain components of, uh, especially the volatile component of the oil uh, that will make it up into the atmosphere, and as clouds uh, and rain form, uh, will be rained out uh, and rained down on the ecosystem. There's no doubt about that. In fact, one of the most striking examples of that, uh, while we were out during our expedition, was witnessing uh, both the flaring of gas as they were uh, trying to contain the, the, the oil and the gas, bringing that up to the surface, separating off the gas from the oil and flaring the gas. Uh, both that effort as well as when they would contain oil on the sea surface and burn it off. Uh, the, the, the chemical components, uh, the aerosols that would come off of that, uh, you could see the plume uh, of smoke rising going up into the upper atmosphere where it would form clouds uh, and, and then actually uh, as precipitation would come out, it would rain down. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite remarkable to see the, the smoke go up forming these clouds, and then rain down. In fact, uh, in a few buckets that we had on just in the back of the boat that were just sitting outside, uh, a couple of storms that went overhead, we could see the inside of the buckets where the rainwater had collected, uh, a lot of those materials pooling uh, right there. Dr. Kessler, a hurricane system really could be quite impactful for Florida, Louisiana, and a lot of these states if these particles do travel in those weather systems. Well, yeah, it, it certainly could, and, and you, you have to ask the question, um, what's the best sort of scenario here? And I, I'm not sure I know that, uh, what that would be. Uh, if you talk about uh, a hurricane coming over, uh, over top here, 
potentially taking uh, some of the, uh, the the aerosols and the volatile compounds um, on land or to other locations, what that's doing is diluting it, is, is really what it's doing. It's taking it out of the concentrated location that it's in right around the wellhead and spreading it out. And while that might be uh, really spreading the harmful components, it's also diluting it out of that, that area. Uh, I, I hate to say that the solution to pollution is dilution, uh, uh, and so that might not truly be the case. It, it might be spreading these toxins. But what again, our, our level un- of understanding here is, is something uh, that that's uh, that's minimal enough where it really uh, preaches the virtues of going out and making more of these scientific measurements to see what is the, the best and the worst case scenario. Is it best to try to dilute these? these sorts of materials uh, and spread it out as, as wide as we can? Is it best to try to keep it contained in one localized area? Well, but then that localized area might have much more harmful effects. Uh, what really is the best sort of scenario here? Well, so that really suggests that with all of that said and all of those unknowns, the people of that region and further field really should put in some sort of strategy to allow for the worst scenario, perhaps, rather than sit and wait for analytical evidence that could take months and months? Should they really be considering these health issues that could could hit them in those areas? Personally, uh, that, that's something that's very, very difficult for me to comment on. Uh, it, a lot of it just simply depends on uh, where these uh, plumes will will propagate how they will migrate over to these populated areas. Uh, certainly, the beaches uh, where where we love to vacation and play could become very very polluted. Uh, certainly, the, the the marine life, the fish that that we uh, enjoy in those locations, either just through uh, simply observing them or even consuming them as food, uh, could could very become very very uh, contaminated. Uh, uprooting whole households, whole families, whole towns, things of that nature. That's something that I, I just don't know if, if that's, uh, uh, again, in the realm of things that uh, would be a smart tactic or would be so on the outskirts of things that are, are highly improbable in terms of the health impacts that are really going to propagate inland to those extents. Uh, that that it's more scare tactic than that actually something uh, that that's really uh, that's really possible. Pat O'Brien, in the last two minutes, do you have any updated information from that area, sir? Well, again, um, we're seeing reports, and we don't like to um, go with what we don't have as pure fact. But there appears to be a numerous health issues that are already starting to appear in some of these workers that are on the beaches. Uh, That leads me to believe that we're only seeing tip of the iceberg, and I think it's partly due to uh, the areas that are nearest, as Dr. Kessler is pointing out, uh, we're already seeing the environment taking a hit in Louisiana and uh, Pensacola and uh, various areas. We're also starting to see that while they, uh, they have teams coming out on these beaches and cleaning up the tar balls, that there is another layer about six inches deep below the sand 
that is accumulating. What is that going to be in the long-term effects of our our health and uh, our enjoyment of those beaches? Um, you know, those uh, became a, a very major uh, impact. Uh, if these beaches are going to remain contaminated, how do we how do we fix that? How do we take a, a state like Florida that relies on tourism, and most of it is people going to the beaches, and send them to the beaches when there's a, a level just six inches below of, of toxic um, uh, oil? How do we, uh, you know, how do we justify that? So that is what I'm, I'm concerned about: is the impact right now in tourism in all of these states is a major effect. And it's going to um, cause lack of jobs and uh, lack of, of food, uh, things to sell, industries that rely on, on the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. I, I, it is already starting to see a major impact. But I don't think that the people are realizing that yet. And I don't think we're getting all of the news. I really don't from what our independent investigation has uh, come up with. We're not, and we're not seeing the news, and we're not getting it. And I think part of that is that uh, we don't want to scare anybody. Uh, well, do we scare them, or you know, do we um, uh, just stay in an environment that could be um, toxic and, and without answers? And it doesn't seem like the answers are coming uh, forthcoming enough uh, to be able to react. And I, I, I'm I'm seeing a scenario here that doesn't really excite me that, that, that we're a part of. The news that we have uh, is not being reported. This is news that we have checked and double-checked, and we're not seeing it from our mainstream media. And it, it's going to be uh, until we can get uh, Dr. Kessler's absolute observation of what he's seeing that he's not even sure about, and the truth actually coming out to what others are seeing or finding is that going to make it to mainstream media quick enough for people to react? What about you, and Dr. Kessler, on that point? Do you think that we, we should be informing people as, as much as we can here just to educate them, particularly in those areas? Oh, of course. Uh, that's why I'm here today on your program, to, to educate as, as much as I can about what we know, uh, uh, that what we've observed, what we've measured. Uh, what we've experienced uh, to get that information out to the public as quickly as we can, why we're working so diligently in our laboratory to get these results uh, to the public as, as quickly as we can. That certainly that, that information definitely needs to get out there. Uh, and more of these studies need to, to, be, to be conducted in a very coordinated manner so that that information can be collected just uh, as quickly as it absolutely can, disseminating that to both the public as well as the decision makers uh, to, to, so that the best sort of uh, uh, strategy forward can be established. Dr. John Kessler, thank you so very much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate you sharing time with us and certainly uh, wish you well in the future, uh, clearly working extremely hard on behalf of all of us and uh, Pat O'Brien thank you so much as well for being with us both of you uh, hope you have a very good day and I hope that we all succeed in overcoming this uh, terrible event thank you very much for having me thank you David and Dr. Kessler 
to our listeners. Hope you enjoyed this program and uh, that it was informative uh, for you. And certainly if you are living in those areas, I hope that you are taking every care and uh, provision to uh, uh, keep an eye on this and educate yourselves and uh, look after yourselves. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.